At this time, children can be dismissed to go to their class. While they are going, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, excellent singing. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, we are grateful that we can be here this morning, and God, I pray that the power of your word will be evident this morning. Your word tells us that, that truths we're going to read are, are powerful to change us, and so Lord, I pray that they do. Lord, we need you. We need to change. We need to be people who are drawn closer in our walk with you. And so, Lord, I pray that through this passage we will do that today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read to you the text this morning. And just uh, a few verses, starting in verse 21 and down to verse 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in a faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In this passage, we're continuing the idea we talked about a few weeks ago about reconciliation. Conflict is hard, isn't it? Two men, or the story was told of two men who lived in a small village and they had this terrible dispute and it was affecting the entire village and so they, they could not figure out how to resolve it and so they decided to go talk to the town elder, the town wise man. The first one went to the elder's house and he told him the version of what had happened. He told him the whole story, all the details, as he saw them anyway. When he finished, the wise man just looked and all he said was this, you're absolutely right. The man walked away, pleased to know that he was right. If the town wise man said he was right, then he must be right and the other man must be wrong. The next night, the, the second man called on the elder and told his side of the story. The elder listened intently and responded, You're absolutely right. He also walked away feeling vindicated. I'm right. I won the argument. Afterwards, the elder's wife came to him and scolded him. Those two men had two totally different stories, and you told them they were both absolutely right. That's impossible. They can't both be absolutely right. The elder turned to his wife and said, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Conflict can be very hard, can it? One of the most unpleasant experiences in life is to be at odds with someone especially if it's someone you love. It may be a, a falling out with someone in your family. Perhaps it's a, it's a neighbor or it's a co-worker and, and, and that, that you just are at odds with. But whoever it is, it's never pleasant. Conflicts always cause strife and anxiety and sometimes even depression. 
On the other hand, one of the life's most pleasant experiences is to make peace with a former enemy. When, when a barrier that divided two different people uh, goes down, that caused that hostility to be removed, there's a sense of joy. It's wonderful when former enemies become friends. And although many of us don't realize it, many of us don't want to admit it, at one point, we were all at odds with the worst enemy we can possibly have, and that is a loving and powerful God. Our sin means that without Christ, we are enemies with God. And if we're not reconciled to God, we will one day face judgment when we, when we, when we die. Alienation from God should cause us far more anxiety than alienation from another human being. And that's what Paul is describing in this text. We were formerly enemies of God. Now, he is talking here in this text, as we've said along, he is talking to believers. He is talking to Christians. And so, formerly is the idea there. He says, once were alienated. But we need to understand what he's talking about here, and that is this, that because of our sin, we were former enemies of God. Alienated. As it says in this passage, engaged in hostile deeds towards God. The Bible tells us that when we sin against God, every sin that we commit is a hostility against God. It's attacking the character of who God is. And I've explained this before, but God is, the Bible says God is a God of love, and so anything that we do is unloving is attacking the character of God's love. And what Paul is describing here is that idea, that, that animosity that we have. But God, because of his great love, the Bible tells us, sacrificed his own son on our behalf to change us from enemies to friends, from alienation to reconciliation. And being reconciled, we now have a responsibility to continue in the faith, and we'll get to that later. Remember, the Colossian church here was... Uh, they were struggling. They were in danger of being influenced by some false teachers. And, and to correct that, Paul uh, begins to tell us of who Jesus is and, and the sovereignty of, uh, of who Jesus is. And we looked at that in verses 18 through 20. The greatest passage is talking about Jesus Christ and, and how he is the sovereign creator of the universe, how he is the head of the church, how he is worthy of preeminence, first place in everything in our lives. And one of the reasons that Paul gives to why he is worthy of preeminence, why he's worthy of first place, is because he reconciled us. And verse 20 talks about that. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, this does not mean that everyone will be saved. But rather, that God will remove the curse on creation that was opposed because of sin. Now Paul gives application to this reconciliation towards the end of this passage, and we, we will talk about that. But first I want to talk about what is the blessing of reconciliation. We who were alienated from God are now reconciled. What does that mean? Reconciliation is needed because all were once alienated from God. It tells us that. Look again at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in your minds doing evil deeds. Now, you may be thinking here for a moment. Wait a second. Paul is talking to the people in Colossae. He's talking to the Colossians, not me. 
I have never been hostile to God. I, I was raised in a Christian home. I was, I was never an atheist or a, or a hater of God or a, or a promoter of things that God hates. Uh, I, 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 that's not me. Words like alienated or hostile or evil deeds, that doesn't describe my past. But we need to understand, if we're going to be faithful to the Scriptures, we need to understand that those um, words may seem harsh, but they're accurate of every single one of us. I was only three years old when out of EBS I came to the understanding that I needed Jesus Christ. I attended church and Sunday school and Sunday night and Wednesday night virtually every single time in my entire life. My parents were very involved in my church. My dad was a Christian school administrator for many years. My dad was the deacon of, of the church we were at, whatever church that was, uh, for many years. And today, he, to this day, he still is. Both my parents taught Sunday school. Both my parents were involved. But you know what I find out? Though I came from an incredible godly heritage, the more and more I'm a Christian, the more I'm appalled at the depth of my sinfulness. The longer and longer I study the Bible, the more I realize how wicked my, to the core I really am. And part of this sinfulness is the pride that, that inclines me to say, I've got my faults, but I'm not that bad. And the same is true of you. Back in the 18th century, there was a woman by the name of, of Lady Huntington. She was uh, a, a very devout Christian. She was also a noblewoman in, in, the, in, 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 in England. Uh, in fact, even in our country here, there's places, I was reading about this, there are places named after her because of her dedication to her faith. Uh, she was friends with a, an evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. If you've studied history, you know who George Whitfield was. He was, he was one of the preachers that started uh, the great revival here in our country, uh, but he, he was from England, and so uh, he was friends with this lady, Huntington, and, and uh, she decided to have him come over to her house and preach. And so he came over, and she invited all of her, her high-class, upper-class friends to hear this evangelist preach. One of those persons that she invited was a woman by the name of Duchess of Buckingham. She was a proud woman. And she invited the Duchess to come. The, the Duchess declined, and this was, this was what she said in her, uh, when she declined. He sa she said this, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I can't but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment with so much variance with the high rank and good breeding that I hold. In other words, she hated to be told that she was wicked but we all are. To be reconciled to God, to be made right with God, you first have to see that you're alienated from God. That you're hostile with God. That you're engaged in evil deeds. Even if outwardly you're relatively a good person, 
Your heart is, as, as the Duchess said, your heart is as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. You're wicked in and of yourself. Our alienation from God, our separation from God is the result of two things. First of all, on God's part, God is completely holy and has, has a settled wrath, which means that God is holy and there's a wrath that must come out of that holiness against sin. That's on God's part. On my part, I have within me, on your part, you have within you, an inborn selfishness and pride that causes us to ignore God who created me and to pursue my own way. And these two things cause a clash. God's holiness and my selfishness. Thus, there is an alienation between God and me. He cannot compromise His holiness and I cannot eradicate my sin. And neither can you. But I want you to notice something that uh, even as we look at this passage, just as a side note, look again what it says there. You are alienated, and then it says you are hostile in your mind doing good deeds. Note from that that sin begins in the mind. And it works itself out in, in deeds, evil deeds. We are hostile towards God in our thinking first, which results in disobedient actions. Therefore, dealing with sin is just a matter of cleaning up my behavior will never work. And that's what many people think. Just the other day, I was talking to, a, to an individual who I've had a lot of dealings with, and, and he said to me this. He said, he, he said, one day when I die, I hope I have achieved enough to measure up to God. No matter how much you clean the outside, the inside is still wicked. And, and uh, we see that in Scripture. Notice what it says. Sorry, I didn't put that up there. Notice what it says in Romans. For the mind... Uh, that is, on cell, uh, is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. It doesn't talk about our outward actions there. It says our mind is hostile to God. You can change the outside, but your mind is still a problem. In our natural state, we are incapable of pleasing God. We may uh, be able to clean up the outside, but we are not able to clean up our hearts and our minds. As someone once said, you can put a tuxedo on a pig, but its pig nature makes it still want to wallow in the mud. You can dress yourself up. You can change this. You can be a do-gooder. You can, you can perform all these good things. You can be a good dad and a good mom, and you can be a good husband and a good wife, and you can be a good citizen, and, and you can be a kind person, and you can, you can give to your community, and you can give to church, and you can do all these things, but you know what's still deep inside of you? wickedness. And the most difficult heart problem that we try to eradicate is this pride that says I'm basically good and God will accept me because of my good deeds. He won't. And so this natural hostility, this natural uh, alienation exists between the holy God and the sinful man. But here's the good news is that every New Testament passage that deals with this great doctrine of reconciliation emphasizes the same thing. You know what it emphasizes? Every one of these emphasizes that this reconciliation that is done is not done by us. 
It's not dependent on my efforts to get right with God, but on His actions centered on the sacrifice of His Son. And so notice what it says next. And we look at the second thing. Reconciliation by God comes through Christ's death. Look again at the passage. And you who were once alienated and hostile in your minds, doing evil deed, He has now reconciled. Notice that. He took the initiative. God took the initiative. Nothing I can do can, can, can cause that, that, that great alienation to be fixed. So he did the work. Notice what it says in Romans. Uh, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Oftentimes when I talk to someone, or maybe you've had this same experience, you talk to someone about their relationship with God, and, and then they will say, what's, what's the big deal about sin separating us from God? Why doesn't God just forgive us? Uh, you know, even humans are able to forgive others who do them wrong. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I know, within uh, honesty moment here, within the last 24 hours, I have hurt people in my life because I'm a sinner. And I'm thankful that they forgive me. And so the common thought is, is if humans will forgive, then why, why can't God just let bygones be got bygones? Why can't God just say, ah, it's no big deal? Why did Christ need to die for our sins? Besides, my sins really aren't that bad. I've never killed anyone. I've been faithful to my wife. I work to support my family. I'm not a bad person. I don't have anything against God. I'm not, I'm not attacking God. Why does God require a radical solution that Christ died for my sins? Now, if, if you can relate to those thoughts, then I don't think you have a sufficient understanding of who God is or how great your sin is in His sight. I think probably what's been happening is you've been wrongly influenced by our tolerant culture. Our culture puts God down by making him some sort of benign, tolerant grandfather. And we lift ourselves up by thinking, compared to those awful people, I'm a pretty good person. Someone once said this, it is partly because sin doesn't provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. It is partly because we are not disgusted by sin that we think God's not going to be disgusted by sin. But if God were tolerant of sin, he would not be God. If he denied his absolute holiness by winking at sin, he would be compromising his justice, which rightly demands the penalty of sin be paid. Let me give you an example. If a man murders your mother... And it comes to trial, and the judge is up on the bench during the trial, and, and, and he comes down off of the bench, and he walks up to the murderer and gives him a hug and says, I love you, man. Try not to do that again. You'd be rightly outraged. And you would be right to want to see that person face the penalty of their sin. While God is love, 
His love never compromises his holiness and his justice. And so God does love us. So the question is, how can God be both holy and loving? How can he uphold perfect justice where, where he, he, he meets the demands of uh, punishment on those who have sinned and yet extend reconciling mercy to all? Here's the amazing part, and this is what this passage says. The answer is through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God sent his eternal son to the world to take on human flesh, to live a sinless life so that he could pay the just penalty that we deserve for our sins. Now in this passage, Paul is uh, probably um, combating another one of those um, errors that the Colossians were struggling with. Remember I said a few weeks ago they were struggling with some, some views of Christ and one of the views of Christ they were struggling with was how he could be God and man. They didn't believe that was possible, that he could be both things. And so there's, there's no way he could do both of those. And so either he was truly God or he was truly man and, and I, they weren't sure about that. So he couldn't be truly man. And so in this passage, Paul uses what seems to be a redundant phrase to attack that thought. Look again what he says in this passage, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. Well, those two things are the same thing, aren't they? Body and flesh. In this body of flesh by his death. What he is trying to get us to understand here is that Jesus' death was a real physical death. And it was the only way that we could be reconciled. See, because God is just, and so because God is just and God is holy, punishment must happen. And yet God is love. And so he looked down, he loved you and, and loves me and wants us to be reconciled. And so the only way that was possible was that all of his wrath was thrown on Jesus Christ. Hebrews states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Being God in human flesh, Jesus' death satisfied God's just wrath by paying the penalty. God took our sin and, and, and put it on Christ who was without sin. Then, then the crazy part is this, is God took Christ's perfect righteousness, he never sinned, and put it on us. I love what it says in, in Romans 3 when it says this, that, that he was not only just, but he was the justifier. In, in other words, not only was God just in, in punishing sin, but then he, made, he, he was the justifier in that he gave us an opportunity to be free from the penalty of sin. So the basis of reconciliation is judicial. Jesus paid the just penalty of God's wrath. But in this passage, it talks about the idea of reconciliation, and this idea of reconciliation is also a relational word. It points to a healing in personal relationships. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we see one of, the, one of the greatest passages of reconciliation when it says this, but God demonstrated his love towards us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of reconciliation in the Bible is, is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You remember that story? This young man demands from his father the portion of his inheritance before his father even died. And he takes that inheritance and he runs to a far country and he loses it all in sinful living and he gets to the point where he's, he, he's literally in the gutter. And he comes to his senses. And he decides, I'm going to return home uh, in hopes that maybe he could just serve as one of his dad's hired hands. And he's on his way home, and we don't know how far away he is, but it says, the Bible says his father sees him. You know what that tells me, first of all? Just side note. His dad was looking for him. You know, God, God, is, God is waiting for us. And his father sees him, and what does he do? He, he runs after him. He embraces him. He kisses him. And he welcomes him home by throwing him a party. That's the heavenly father's great love for every sinner who repents. Have you experienced it? But why does God reconcile us? Well, let's continue on. The third thing I want you to notice is reconciliation allows God to present a believer as holy and blameless. Look what it says in verse 22 again. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. What does it say then? In order to, here's why, to present in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. God's aim is that on judgment day, you will stand before God as perfect. Now Jude talks about this in Jude 24. It says there, Now to, uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to present, and to present you blameless before the presence of glory with great joy. Now, it is a rare thing to know someone who you would describe as blameless and beyond reproach. Now, you can think of people in your mind, and you're like, those are pretty good people. But to think of someone that's blameless, that's pretty hard to find. And we're only seeing the outward. But to stand in the presence of a holy God who knows not only your outward actions, but knows your, your, inner, uh, your, your inner hidden thoughts and your motives and everything that you've ever thought, and yet God declares you holy and blameless and beyond reproach, that sounds impossible, doesn't it? How can that be true? Well, it's true because Paul and Jude are looking at the final result of our sanctification, the final result of, of our salvation and our reconciliation. There are three, just quickly, there are three aspects uh, of, of sanctification. There, are, there is positional sanctification. What that means is when I am reconciled with God through the death of Jesus Christ, he sets me apart to himself. He clothes me with Christ's perfect uh, righteousness and, and seated me in the heavenlies. But I'm not there yet. 
And so the second part of this sanctification is this. It's called progressive sanctification. That is, as I walk each and every day of my life, my desire, my goal, my, my, my plea with God is that I put to death the deeds of the flesh and I grow in obedience and I become increasingly holy, blameless, and above reproach. But I'll still never be perfect in this life. And finally, one day when I die or when Christ dies, our sin nature will be completely eradicated. That is perfect sanctification because we will become like Christ and this is the ultimate aim of reconciliation. Someone says, well then, do I need to live holy and and pure and blameless and above reproach today? Yes, we do. We need to strive for that because that should be something that we continue to strive to grow in each and every day. But we know that one day, this sinful flesh of mine and this sinful flesh of yours will be completely gone. So does the fact that we will be perfectly sanctified means that we can just kick back and not worry about our sin. No. Because I want, to notice, I want you to notice the second thing as, as we close in just a few moments. What is the responsibility of one who has been reconciled? Verse 23 tells us, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I want to show you three aspects here of the responsibility that we have as reconciled people. If you are here today and you have been reconciled with God, praise him for it. But now he gives you some responsibilities. First of all, continuing in faith means being grounded in the hope of the gospel. He starts off that verse by saying, uh, if indeed you continue. By saying, if, if you continue, he is not expressing doubt. Paul is not looking at the church at, uh, at Colossae and going, I'm not so sure about you guys. No, what he is doing is he is giving a warning. Paul was confident that these new believers could carry, could, could carry on in their faith without being carried away by false teaching and that they would continue in Christ. Yet, at the same time, the test of genuine faith is that it perseveres by holding on to the gospel. So the test of your faith is that you persevere. And so Paul was saying, he's talking to people who are believers, and he's saying, I believe you can continue because if you have faith, you're going to continue. But there's a warning with this if. And that is, it is your responsibility to remain in the faith. It is your responsibility if you remain in the faith there. He says it's your responsibility to do that. And this is interesting because we see this this dichotomy we see throughout the Bible that oftentimes God will put together God's sovereignty and our responsibility in the same context. And that's what he's doing here. God's sovereignty gives us comfort that since he saved us, He will keep us. The Bible says no one will be able to pluck you out of his hand. He will keep us. But that's never an invitation to sit back and cruise through our Christian life. We can trust that God will will bring us to glory, but he does that through our obedient perseverance and faith. Both of those are true. And maybe that's hard to understand, but both of them are true. That God will keep us, yet it is our responsibility to continue in the faith. Both of these are true, and we're out of balance if we let go of either of these. 
If we think on one hand that it's all about us, that I've got to continue in the faith, that I've got to persevere, that I've got to do all this, and God doesn't do anything, you're going to fail. But if you're over here sitting there going, well, God's going to keep me, God keep me, and we don't persevere, you're going to fail. It is our responsibility to have a balance of those two. Here, our responsibility, as, as, as Paul says, is to be what? What does he say in verse 22? To be stable and steadfast. Not shifting, not moving away from the hope of the gospel. As you know, if you're going to build anything of lasting substance, the foundation is critical. When I was a teenager, um, I got a dog. Uh, his name was Bear. Uh, he was a bear, okay? He was, he was a black lab, and someone um, who, who was a delivery person found him in the country on their route and gave him to me. He, he was a puppy at the time and started training him, and uh, he ended up, I don't know, we ended up, couldn't keep him because uh, at some point I think he had been mistreated, and so he was very aggressive towards men. Uh, I was young at that time, so I wasn't very tall, but anytime my dad would come near him, he'd try to rip my dad's head off and any other man. But when I first got him, I, I said, I've got to take care of him, and so I built a doghouse. Now, I am not Mr. Construction Man, okay? So this was not the greatest dollhouse in the world, okay? But I built a doghouse. Now, I did not build a foundation. It's a doghouse, Okay? But if I, was to, if, if I was to decide, uh, you know, I'm going to go build a house and not build a foundation. The doghouse, I can just put it on the grass, okay? It's got three walls and, and a roof, and it's good. The dog's just sitting there. But I couldn't do that with my house because anything that is lasting must have a foundation. And the foundation for our Christian faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to not only hang on to it, but you need to know it. Are you clear on the gospel? If I was to pause right now in the service and I was to stop and say, okay, in the next 60 seconds, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to explain with scripture references the gospel. Would you be able to do it? Some of you say, yeah, no problem. Some of you go, oh boy. Here he's telling us this in this passage that you need to, if you're going to continue, if you're going to hang on, you need to be grounded in the gospel, the hope of the gospel. You need to know it. Beyond that, you need to lay uh, a foundation upon that uh, of basic understanding of the Bible and its, and its core teachings. You know, we live in a world today where the enemy is trying to attack the basics of what you believe. And here's the thing, is Satan is getting smarter and smarter how he does it. He's attacking who Jesus Christ is. He's attacking the inerrancy of Scripture. That's a big one right now. People will tell you, well, you know, the Bible's not completely true. Can we really believe it? It's a scary thing when you start doing that. Begins attacking things like Genesis chapter 1. And we need to 
have enough biblical knowledge to understand what we believe. Or you're going to get blown around by every wind of false doctrine that comes along. If you've never done it, get get a study Bible and, and study through the Word of God. Read through it, but not just to read. Read through it and study it. Hold on to, uh, be grounded in the hope of the gospel. But secondly, continue in the faith means holding on to the true gospel. It's not just enough to hold on to the gospel. You need to hold on to the true gospel. uh, and, And especially as Paul was talking to this church in the face of false teaching. One of the most prevalent topics in the New Testament is warning against false teachers. And, and, and almost all false teaching attacks the essence of the gospel. And that's why you need to be grounded in these doctrines and you need to hold on to them to, to know that I'm holding on to the right gospel. I'm holding on to the Word of God. Thirdly, if continuing, uh, continuing in the faith means proclaiming the gospel to all people. Look what he says there at the end of this passage. He says, this hope of the gospel which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now he's probably exaggerating a little bit at this point uh, to make his point, but he's saying this, this one true gospel is spreading everywhere, and he's saying and it's the same gospel I preach everywhere I go. This, this gospel has a universal appeal. Although we need to be sensitive and wise in how we communicate with people of different cultures and different uh, worldviews and different understandings, we do not need to modify the gospel or tone it down at all. The message of the cross will, will be foolishness to some. It will be offensive to others, but to those who believe it's the power of God for salvation. And Paul is saying here, that is what I am doing. Now it's interesting, he says there uh, that of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. And this idea of minister is not some special sacred word reserved only for the special class of ordained clergy. Other places that uh, use words that talk about that, but in this particular verse, when he's saying, I am a minister, he is not uh, limiting himself inside this special class. This is all of us, we're all ministers of the gospel. The word that is used there simply means servant. And so what Paul is saying is this, is this, this gospel that I'm holding on to needs to be proclaimed, and Paul says, and I'm trying to do it as a servant of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you are an ambassador to the lost world. You are an ambassador of the gospel. That is not just the responsibility of of clergy. The world around you is your mission field. Pray for wisdom to take advantage of every opportunity that you have. Now, with a message like this, there is a couple different ways that you can apply this message depending on your situation. If you are here today and you have never been reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that is your incredibly urgent need to do today. 
If you are at odds with God, if you are, if you are uh, alienated from God because of your sin and you've never called on Him, take care of that today. One preacher said this, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon will be too late. Now, if you are here today and you have been reconciled, but maybe you're not grounded in your faith. Maybe, maybe you... Uh, you know, you know what you believe, but you're not completely grounded in it. You don't have a firm understanding. Here's, here's what I would suggest is you lay out a plan and get started. Read through the Bible. Uh, work through our... Here, here's a great way to start, and not because uh, we have everything perfect all the time, but here's a great way to start. Get the church's doctrinal statement and read through it. Read through it and read through all the all the verse notes that are there. We've gone through that recently and we've poured through it and, and, uh, and read through those and say, so you understand more deeply what it is you believe. Maybe talk to one of your pastors for advice. Get a good book on doctrine and we can re- recommend those to you. But begin to get a deeper understanding of the Word of God. That is not something that is just for the people in leadership. That is something that every single person should do because he tells us in this passage, as we've looked at, he says, you need to be stable, steadfast, and you need to know. You need to be grounded. Maybe you're here and you, the, the third application is you are grounded. But you're, you're not being a minister of the gospel. You're content to let other people do that. It is a responsibility that all of us have to proclaim to all creation under heaven the gospel of Jesus Christ. So which application applies to you? Maybe it's just the fact that you need to be reacquainted with the idea that you are a sinner and then God reconciled you and that you need to walk out of here with gratefulness for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of this, this particular text. God, I know the sin of my heart. And I know that there is not enough good I could do to ever allow me to be good enough to be in your holy presence. So God, I am truly grateful that you saw fit to send your son holy son come down and die for me so that I can be reconciled to you. And as we read in our Sunday school class this morning, therefore, Lord, there is no condemnation on me. Because of that, I, I can have a, an intimate relationship with you. And in that intimacy, God, I come to you and I ask that you continue to work in my life and that you continue to work in the lives of those here today that we will hang on to, hold on to the gospel. But we won't just hide it. We'll proclaim it. Lord, I pray you help us to be faithful to that task. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.